0: What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian.
0: Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I'm Ben. And I'm Scott. And today we are joined yet again by... Uh Casey, don't call it a comeback, Pegro. Now oh, I like it. Yeah, because uh, Casey, as we mentioned before, has been a uh, longtime friend of the show and was our primary producer for a while. Yeah, for a long, long time he was. Right up until the point when uh, when Noel took over. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And uh, now he is back, but don't call it a comeback because uh, you know, with well, his one big family, we still all hang out and talk to each other yeah. outside of stuff. Casey's so. been around all along.
3: It's just he wasn't. He's not producing our show. Right,
2: yeah. Primarily due to, uh, creative differences. No,
3: just. Kidding. What's, what's Noel off doing anyways? He probably, uh, he's, he's got some adventure going?
2: Yeah, Noel is actually, I, I don't know how much you would want me to say, but no, Noel, oh, Noel's out true. on a, an adventure. Okay, yeah. we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Out on a completely legitimate, non-sketchy adventure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, speaking of adventures, today, Scott, I'm excited about this one. This is, uh, one of our, biographical episodes. Sure,
3: yeah. And uh, I feel like somewhere along the way a listener has suggested this, but I don't know where it came from. I have a feeling, I have a fear, I guess, maybe, Ben, that it came from Facebook. And you and I have discussed Facebook a few times, how... Sorting those messages or, or searching those messages is nearly impossible.
2: Yeah, it's strange. You know, that's how we know we're getting old, man, because uh, we're starting to say, why can't I get this darn thing to work? Yeah, there's you probably I mean. a way
3: to do it. There's probably a way to do it. But, uh, you know, I had been writing these down in a notebook along the way because, so I wouldn't lose them just because of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, maybe this one got lost. But if you or someone who suggested that we do a show about automotive legends, and I think along those lines was uh, Smoky Eunuch yeah and uh Mickey Thompson
2: right uh, and Carol Ross. Shelby,
3: and uh you know Jack Roush and mm-hmm. all those guys but someone also suggested that we do Eddie Rickenbacker, and we're fast Eddie I guess maybe <laughs> and uh this guy is fascinating when I when I started reading about Eddie Rickenbacker, I had no idea where this story was gonna go he's an he's an interesting interesting guy with uh with some pretty serious automotive ties but there's more to his story than just that so along the way we're going to talk about um, um the ownership of an airline we're going to talk about his world war one and world war two exploits yes um you know just as his, his life in general had so many twists and turns to it that he's a he's an interesting character he had his own car company for a while mm-hmm. um, which we'll talk about that too he had several brushes with uh death yep oh yeah that okay before we even jump into this story Yeah. That's one of those things that when you first start reading about him, almost invariably in the first couple of paragraphs of whatever story you're going to read about this guy, they're going to say that kind of a defining characteristic of this guy's life was that many times in his life he almost died. And I find that's that's kind of a funny way to say it, but Mm -hmm. he had a lot of near-death experiences, some that were far more severe than others, I think, I mean, as far as uh, maybe more dramatic, I should say. But they were all very close. I mean, he... Uh, starting out when he was very young. I mean, uh, I, can, I can list you just a couple right now before we get to the big ones, but just to give you an example, I think he died, se- nearly died several times. He was he was reported as dead to the public at least twice before he actually died. Yes. Um, but just things like this, like he had an early run-in with a horse-drawn carriage when he was very young. Um, he had a botched tonsillectomy when he was young as well that, uh, that nearly killed him. Um, I think that the other one, there was something that maybe is when he was in grade school, I think, um they were in <laughs> he was part of something that they called the Horsehead Gang. Now I don't know if that's like a kids gang, you know, that kind of ran around together <laughs> right, like yeah. an R gang type of situation, right. you know, yeah. uh with the little rascals, but um they said that was maybe his first real life threatening experience where um he lived near an old mine and they used to ride the the mine cart down the slope uh near his house and one day it tipped over and almost crushed them to death. Uh, so that's that's one thing, but these get more severe as his life goes on, like these these near death experiences. And you know, being a race car driver and all that, you would expect one thing, but that's not really what's going to happen to this guy. It's there's, mm-hmm. it's. Yeah, I tell you, when we get to it, you're going to find it fascinating.
2: Uh, yeah, M. Night Shyamalan could write uh, could write plots <laughs> yeah. like this. Do you remember M. Night Shyamalan? Uh, of course, I just saw his recent movie. Um, oh, you just yeah, saw the visit. I saw the visit. Yeah.
3: Uh, we, we have to talk off air about that. What do what do you think? Well, you know what? I, I I'll say I liked it, but the reason I liked it was because it was taking my kid to her first really kind of scary movie at the theater. Whoa. And that was exciting because I, I, she's 13 mm-hmm. and it's kind of like the age when I can remember in my past, you know, watching like maybe a Friday the 13th or something like that, where yeah. like, a, like a cool parent would take you out to see something like that. Now this one wasn't an R rated or anything. Okay. I don't think. I think it was PG 13. Um, but Either way, I wanted her to see a scary movie this season. You know, when she's 13, mm-hmm. it's kind of time, you know, I guess maybe it's like a rite of passage almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this is a pretty good one to start with. It was spooky. Um,
2: big twist in it. Um, right, of as, course. Of course, yeah. As for normal. Yeah, it normally does that. But um so you've seen it as well? Yeah, yeah. I saw it as well because the, uh, the trailer seemed interesting and uh, my girlfriend and I are both fans of horror movies, so... I wanted to check that out. And also, it's strange to me that there is so much criticism of M. Night Shyamalan. I get it. You know, a lot of people make, uh, you can't make bad movies. You can't have, can't have winners all the time, right? No, sure. Uh, cause otherwise it's not a competition, which is ultimately what Hollywood is. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I thought it was, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I can't say much, though, because I don't want to spoil it for other people. Yeah,
3: that's the thing. We, we're not allowed to say a whole lot about it. I mean, and plus, we're not really doing a movie podcast anyway. No, so. you're right. You're right.
2: Uh, for the <laughs> record, the first R-rated movie I was able to see was when my dad stuck me in in a theater. was when my dad stuck me into Freejack, which was just this not-the-best movie. Uh, it had racing in it. That was oh, okay. about it. Oh, well, that's cool. You know, All right, right, so let's let's go. Speaking of times past, let's start... Let's see, do you want to start at the beginning of Rickenbacker's life, or you want to go a little before? Well, how about this? We'll start
3: at the beginning of his life, and uh, maybe just uh, go from there. I mean, it starts in 1890. Right, and uh, we'll, we'll go through his his life history, but not ex, in excruciating detail. How no, about that? We'll
2: get to the other stuff. So, yeah, in 1890, he's born Edward Rickenbacker, uh, no middle name, in Ohio, in Columbus specifically. His parents are Swiss immigrants who speak German.
3: Interesting that he had no middle name, isn't it? Mm. Uh, later on, I heard that he had chosen his own middle name. He decided that he uh, he wrote his name out, and this is a weird story. He wrote his name out 26 times and used every letter of the alphabet as a in middle initial to see how it feels yeah like, yeah, like he wrote his name out said edward a rickenbacker all the edward way to uh, B. edward rickenbacker edward and, he wrote it all out, <laughs> and he determined that he liked the look of v uh the best so he stuck with edward vernon rickerbocker right and that's kind of like his own self-given middle name
2: which you know is a thing that i, I think is kind of cool that that'd be a cool thing to do as a kid you know and someone says okay you have to hold off for a while you have to say all right not have a middle name now you either have to earn one or give one to yourself. Well, this this your is kind life. of like what we do with uh, with Noel and with uh, with Casey. Yeah, right. The, the nicknames almost <laughs> like uh, you know something in the middle. I guess you're right. Maybe we should alphabetize them. <laughs> anyway, he loved machines from yeah. a very very early age, which is something that we hear often with entrepreneurs. Right, mm-hmm. is that they are born with this love of machines. Now, you mentioned his you mentioned his earlier brush with death. During his affiliation with the Horsehead Gang. Right? Sure,
3: yeah, yeah, the mine cart and the, uh, the cart tip, tipping over and almost crushing him to death. Um, so, you know, he, he's, uh, like a like a school-aged kid, you know, he's interested in machines and stuff like that and, you know, has a, a mechanical interest. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1903, when he was just 13 years old, his father passes away.
2: Yeah, tragedy strikes.
3: Yeah, tragedy strikes and, uh, and he had to quit school and he used that mechanical skill to go to work as a machinist on the Pennsylvania Railroad. Mm-hmm. And, In doing so, um, had to, you know, quit school, had to kind of support the family, had to do all that, but, um, this kind of led him to future employment at a place called the, uh, the Freyer Miller Air-Cooled Car Company. And Freyer Miller, Freyer Miller, that's a tough one to say for me, um, that's a type of vehicle that was built by the Oscar Lear Automobile Company, and these were manufactured between 1904 and 1910, so, so just as he's beginning to, uh, to develop his machining career, you know, with the Pennsylvania Railroad, uh, Freer Miller, uh, notices his talent and say that they, uh, you know, they want him to come work for that company.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he aggressively pursued any, any kind of automotive related job, hobby, or industry. This is a car guy from very early age. And here is where we enter into one of the largest, most successful races in U.S. history because eventually Rickenbacker becomes a race car driver in the early days of Indy 500. Yeah, and
3: you know where all this began was, remember I I mentioned about the Freyer-Miller car? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he started racing these cars around 1910 when he was about age 20. So the Freyer-Miller racing uh, history, I guess, if you want to go through that, I I don't know if we need to mention that or not, but... Um, it, this car was, was promoted as being the car of endurance. Okay. So it was a, uh, an endurance racing type vehicle. And, of course, you know, Rickenbacker working for the company wanted, wanted to, uh, to race these cars as well. So he did start doing that. And, you know, the, the racing history of the company goes back about five years prior to that. So 1905, you know, they built them from 1904 to 1910. Around 1905, they started racing them. And this is interesting, Ben. I found this little side note. The world's first, 24 hour race was held in Columbus, Ohio, and that's where all this is happening. I don't know if we mentioned that. He was we mentioned. Uh, he
2: was born in Columbus.
3: Yeah, he's born in Columbus, and really, you know, st- this working, you know, where he was, he's still w- living and working in Columbus, Ohio. Um, but the the world's first 24 hour race was held in Columbus, Ohio, uh, back in 1905, and one of these, uh, these stripped down uh frayer miller cars was driven by lee frayer one of the uh one of the co-founders of the company Mm -hmm. um and during that 24-hour race now he didn't finish the race because of an accident it wasn't the car broke down or anything but he drove a total of 728 miles um with an average of two hours and 10 minutes per 100 miles so that's about 50 miles per hour that's about what they were doing not bad for 1905 really Uh uh but this wasn't eddie racing yet um and to continue that kind of uh, racing heritage or, or, you know, to kind of build the the, the, uh, the that heritage, I guess, uh, for the for the Freyer-Miller company, um, another one of the Freyer-Miller employees ran in something called the Long Branch Race. And I think that was in New Jersey. I've been trying to dig into that. I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, but a Freyer-Miller car covered more miles in one week than any other type of self-propelled vehicle. Now, <laughs> More miles in one week, so this is a long, long race. I can't yeah. find out a lot of details about this long, long branch race right now, uh, but I think it was a week-long race. So they covered 3,202 miles in six days, 15 hours, and 29 minutes. Um, and they said during the last 1,800 or so miles, the engine never stopped, and it broke records for distance and endurance along the way. So Eddie, right away, has kind of... Locked himself in with this company that has a really good reputation for endurance and racing and all mm-hmm. that. And that leads him to the Indy 500, as you mentioned, in, right. in the early, early days, the second race that was ever run there.
2: Very early days. And he ends up competing about four times, yeah. uh, in his, in his first stint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, uh, this along with his other racing stripes, huh? Get ah, it? not Ben. Sorry. Uh, he, he, gets a nickname himself. Fast Eddie. Yeah. So, uh, Fast Eddie Rickenbacher, Rickenbiker. Uh, he joins, he joins Peugeot, he leaves Peugeot, 1915, he joins the Maxwell race team, uh, then he joins a team called Presto Light as their manager. hmm And he is racing improved, uh, and then begins race improved Maxwells for Presto Light, and then something big hits. World War One, World War One, World
3: War One. Yeah, that's right. And uh, World War One. Uh, this is right around 1917, I think. And um, immediately, he volunteers for service. Uh, so he's age, he, the thing is, he's age 27, and you know, being involved in Indianapolis, you know, with the racing circuit, I guess, you know, because he had he had been there from he was in there in 1912, 1914, 1915, and 1916. So leading up to the 1917 race. Um, he was probably, you know, thinking that he was going to do that again, but along the way, he had these kind of chance encounters with, um, aviators, people that that flew planes. And this is interesting. I'm sure he had a lot to talk about with them because uh, when you think about this, this isn't this so weird that the first flight was really in 1903. This is only 14 years after the airplane was really invented. So, right. he's gotta be fascinated with these new machines and, you know, what they're all about, but right up to this point, you know, he's age 27, he has no experience in the seat of an airplane.
2: No, he has one, he has one really, really lucky run-in out of all his encounters with aviators. Uh, he repairs a stranded aircraft for a guy named Townsend F. Dodd. Uh, this guy would later become General John Pershing's aviation officer and be one of rickenbacker's primary patrons when he fought to become an aviator and it was a hell of an uphill journey for him
3: yeah so uh, if if i am understanding this correctly now the way i read it was that um he had you know requested to go into the air service you know to be able to fly and they said well you don't know how to fly and you're 27 years old you're way too old and which is you know funny to think about but i guess they considered him too old at this point so he said, well, you know, I can uh, – the way I thought it was that he offered to fix the U.S. Army Air Service chief's car, uh, but maybe it was that he had fixed it ahead of time and he already knew the guy, and they said, well, we're going to grant this guy special favor, maybe.
2: Ah, uh, Okay, yes. Yeah, so is that
3: maybe the way it happened, that he, he repaired it ahead of time? And that's – uh it was kind of like, uh, well, I've scratched your back, now we scratch mine.
2: Well, here's here's part of why it was tough. And and some of this is based on Rickenbacker's autobiography. Ah, uh, yes. Which has – Come at in a couple of points in his stories, it, it's come to uh, a matter of like contention. How his father really passed away is is one of those um, one of those parts that academics argue about too. Sure, yeah. Uh, so we we do know. I can talk a little bit about why it was so difficult for him to become a navier, not just because he was twenty seven, sure, but also because this is World War One and he was a German American.
3: Yes, that's right, but he was born, he's, he, was born he' was born here born in, in the, the States, in the but, States but, but his parents
2: were of Swiss and German uh, right. Um, heritage right So it still takes so the, that prejudice is still there you know uh, and
3: yeah would he would he you know with all of his heart fight against the German people right uh, when he is in fact himself by blood a German American.
2: Yes, and just to show how important this is, he actually had to change his name. Just one letter. Yeah. Uh, it used to be Rickenbacker, R-I-C-K-E-N-B-A-C-H-E-R, mm-hmm. like Bach or something, but he changed that H to another K, so it's more like Rickenbacker. Yeah, what do they call it?
3: Anglicizing it maybe? or yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, alright, so, in, in other words, he gets into this training program, and apparently he's very good. Uh, yes. He's really good at what he does. And of course, I, I think, I think that has a lot to do with, you know, his skill as a race driver. I mean, he, he did decent in Indianapolis, didn't do great. I think his best placing was 10th place. But, you know, typically mm-hmm. we think of, uh, you know, these guys that, that race cars like this, uh, that they're, they've got good reflexes, they've got good eyesight, they've, uh, you know, they've got kind of a, uh, a feel for the machine that they're in mm-hmm. and, and the surrounding areas around. I'm sure he had all of that going for him when he went into this program. Right. Um, but he was very good at what he did, and by the time let's see, we, he enlisted in 1917. Right. Uh, by April of 1918, he was on the front lines, and I think his first mission was April 6th of 1918. So it, he went on to you know over the course of his uh, his career here in, in World War One, he flew more than 300 combat hours in the air. Um, you know, in the, in these planes that he flew. And he was very successful. Oh, yeah.
2: He when he finally got there. Can we go back just a little bit? Cause I want to talk about how much more difficult it was. For oh, him. sure. Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, uh, so he travels to Europe before the war starts when he's helping to develop English cars for American races. Mm-hmm. And along the way, he gets this idea and he says, you know, who would make great fighter, a great fighter pilot? Me. And other race car drivers, because we're really good at tight spaces and high speeds. Right.
3: You know, that's exactly
2: what I just said. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And, and, what do you know? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm bringing up, because he agreed with you. It's an actual thing he said. Huh. Uh, and he, um, he also had one more huge hurdle that he had to get over when it came to actually flying. What was that? Well, yeah, two. Uh, the first is that most of the guys they chose to be pilots at that time had college degrees. Oh. And he didn't. No, he dropped out when he was 13, so yeah. about the seventh grade somewhere. Yeah, in and he did correspondence courses and stuff like that, and he was largely self-taught. But also, he was a crack mechanic.
3: Yeah, the guy's smart. He was mechanically um, inclined.
2: Right, and he was an engineering officer, so... He would practice flying during his free time, but his superiors didn't want him, weren't 100% on his team when it came to becoming a pilot because then they would lose this awesome mechanic.
3: He didn't have the traditional schooling that was required.
2: Right. So eventually he says, look, I've got this guy who can replace me as a mechanic. Just let me get in the, the friggin' air. Mm-hmm. And they do, and that's when he beca- starts becoming a legend, yeah, as like you said. Yeah, uh, the like guy's a superstar. I mean, yeah. uh,
3: he... he. Okay, so here's kind of the, the rundown of what happened when he was in World War I. Um, his his division, the 94th Aero Squadron, w- often encountered the Red Baron's Flying Circus while he was there. He's right on the front lines across the line from the Red Baron's Flying Circus. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that they traveled and moved along now... The the flying circus. Just in case you're not familiar, it's a it's a, um, a consolidation of four fighter squadrons on the German side, yeah. and it was led by the Red Baron himself, Manfred von uh, Richtofen. Mm-hmm. I think I hope I'm saying that right, but it's the Red Baron. So everybody can picture the Red Baron. Um, but he was up against the best of the best, really. I mean, as far as like his his missions that he flew and he was very very successful in fact he became the top US flying ace of the entire war when all this ended earning him the nickname the
2: ace of aces
3: yeah exactly right so by may i know we said that you know his first mission was in uh, when was it april 6th of 1918 mm-hmm. by may 30th of 1918 just 2 months after um his service began he was uh, he was an official flying ace now to be a flying ace i think we've talked about this in the past a yeah. long long time ago we talked about this i can't Maybe, remember
2: how we got there but we have i think that it was part
3: of remember when we were doing audible ads mm-hmm. we talked about the eddie Rickenbacker story that's right that's and what we did we yeah. mentioned uh what it takes to be a flying ace and just as a quick real quick uh recap you have to shoot down a certain number of enemy aircraft in combat and that number uh, unofficially or actually somewhat officially along the way is right around 5. So if you shoot down 5 enemy aircraft, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot when you're talking about a dogfight in World War 1 aircraft. I mean, uh-huh. uh, and, and in fact, you'll find that throughout history, most of the, the the planes that were shot down were shot down by these top aces. It wasn't like, a, you know, just a few people that shot down one or two here and there and that was about right. it.
2: There were a few people who shot down multiple planes. That's
3: exactly what I mean. And Rickenbacker eventually by the end of the war, his kill count or his, his takedown count was up to 26. So he did very, very well. That's, again, the top, uh, U.S. flying ace of, of the entire, uh, the entire war. Um, now, just to give you some perspective, I guess, the mm-hmm. Red Baron, which is kind of, I mean, I think everybody can, you know, have heard the name the Red Baron, probably. Right. You know, whatever. Whether it's Snoopy pretending to be the Red Baron on the, uh, you know, the Peanuts shows or whatever. But, um, he shot down something like, like these are confirmed shoot downs. Like 80? 80. Yes, and and he's not the top ace of all time. The top ace of all time had something like, I want to say it was three hundred and fifty-two or something like that. It was a huge, huge number, just an enormous number. So these guys are responsible for a lot of of uh, plane takedowns and and uh, reconnaissance balloons and things like that. So by September of nineteen eighteen, he was promoted to captain of the squadron, and then by you know October thirtieth of nineteen eighteen, you know just days before the end of the war, because I think it ended November eleventh of nineteen eighteen. Uh Rickenbacher made his twenty sixth and final you know shoot down or takedown of a plane uh to become that that top U.S. pilot or mm-hmm. top U.S. flying ace. So uh this guy has definitely got uh got some chops, I guess.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And this okay. We'll take a we'll take just a note here to emphasize how incredibly dangerous it was to be a pilot in World War I. Yeah. Right? Uh, you are, sure, you are capable in ideal circumstances of completing a mission, shooting down another plane, maintaining air superiority, right? Mm-hmm. But what you are in, what you are flying is a death trap. And the, the rate of attrition is very high for, for pilots at this time. Uh, the Red Baron, probably with the most famous, died when he was, what, 25, I believe.
3: Yeah, he was very young, and uh, they they surmised that it was a, a bullet from the ground that took him down. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a pilot that was given credit to taking him down, but they later determined that, you know, the entry angle of the bullets and all that, it came from below, so he was shot from the ground and taken down, even though he was in the midst of a dogfight with uh, several other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one quick thing I, I want to mention here is that... Um, you know his military awards along the way, and I'll just uh, briefly numerous. mention these. Yeah, but just laundry list. Yeah, just really quick. He won the Medal of Honor citation. Uh, that's for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity above and beyond the call of duty in action against the enemy. And uh, this is this is amazing. This this shows you what kind of guy he was. He voluntarily he was on voluntary patrol over the uh, over the enemy line, and he uh, disregarded the odds against him, and he dove in on five. Uh, Fokker type airplanes that were protecting um, a again a a photographic plane that was you know making reconnaissance runs, and he went against all these odds and he dove in on five other airplanes and he took several of them down, including that plane the uh, the photographic plane.
2: Yeah, uh, he's got other awards as
3: well. Oh yeah, yes. Yeah. So, you know what? He's got seven. He's a seven time recipient of the distinguished service cross citation. So, um, you know, for for various uh, various other um, you know, extraordinary acts of heroism on the battlefield. So, uh this guy is a well-decorated veteran of the World War 1 uh war. You're
0: a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack slack is where work happens with all your people data and information in one ai powered place start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with workflow builder to take routine tasks off your plate no coding required grow your business in slack visit slack.com to get started
1: if you use paper you're a human but if you choose paper you're a papertarian
2: famous and for people who weren't alive during that time and not many of us were uh the the magnitude of this fame may be difficult to communicate because a war hero then was in some ways very different from a war hero now right sure
3: and you know one quick thing i wanted to mention is that these guys were flying in planes that had canvas wings. Right. They were held together with like a, a thick glue that they call, I think it's dope. They call it aerodope or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, it's stretched over a, a wooden frame, and you've got a gasoline engine that is probably leaking like crazy, you know, gas and oil and all other fluids. Yeah, yeah. You've got a machine gun that you're operating on top of that. Uh, you're trying to fly. It's, it's brand new technology, really, at the time. All this stuff is. Um and you're fighting in the air in a three-dimensional combat uh, mm-hmm. you know situation it's it's incredibly difficult. Um so so again it's a it's it's really a, it was against you, you were against the odds really to even come back from a mission in a mm-hmm. lot of cases, um, just because of mechanical failure or whatever.
2: Right, and this adds to his fame. A man who cheated death, right, mm-hmm. is what people might say. So after the World War ends, uh. Rickenbacker is approached numerous times. He's one of the most famous quote unquote German Americans of the day. Uh, he's, he's approached several times because people want to use his fame and his notoriety to, uh, further messages. So they're saying, Eddie, can you go with us on a Liberty Bond tour? Because people were, uh, the government was much more active in, in pushing bonds at the time. Uh, and he was, he was a major when he got out. But because he felt like he earned the rank of captain in his eyes, he, uh, he decided to just use that title for the rest of his life. <laughs> the way that sometimes people will appoint themselves bishops. Ah, I see. You know what okay. I mean?
3: Yeah, I get you. Okay. So here's what's going on at this time too. So it's now, let's say it's 1921 mm-hmm. and he founds his own Automobile company, as uh, you know, a lot of people with big names at the time could do. Right, he could throw around his influence and his name, and, and uh, you know, make things work for him. And really, uh, not a bad car that he put together. I mean, he founded the company called the Rickenbacker Motor Company in 1921 in Detroit, yeah. Michigan. By 1927, I'll let the cat out of the bag. It was defunct by 1927, so it didn't last very long. But right. they built a, a just a bunch of really
2: interesting looking vehicles. They built sporting coupes, they built touring cars, they built sedans, roadsters. They also had a lot of innovations, and and not to I'm not rolling over. No, no, I'm no, just excited about this. No, part. go ahead. Well, they had they had a lot of stuff that you wouldn't see in other cars. So we mentioned uh, we mentioned Rickenbackers in. A podcast a long time ago, Scott, which was, um, I believe it was our, our Curtis Craft episode. No kidding. It was either Curtis Craft or, uh, or somewhere around that timeline. Hmm. Uh, wait, you know, you know what it is? It was brass cars. Oh, brass car areas. Brass yep, era. Yep. yeah. Sure. Uh, so the safety glass, um, was patented by John Wood in England in 1905, but in 1926, rickenbacker cars made it a production feature interesting and they also had numerous other innovations right yes and in 1923
3: here's another innovation yeah. 1923 rickenbacker introduced four-wheel brakes now i'm not saying four-wheel disc brakes i'm not mm-hmm. saying four-wheel steering or anything just like that.
2: brakes on all four wheels exactly right
3: and and i hate you know, I hesitate to say that it's the first ever. That's always tricky. It's, it is tough. But I'm going to say that it's among the first, and it may be the first vehicle that had four-wheel brakes. But regardless, the stuff that we just talked about, in addition to other things that he included in these cars, because they were they were well-built vehicles, they were also very expensive vehicles. And yeah. uh, the sales just weren't there. So, um, you know, poor sales means that you're not going to be in business too long. However, by 1927, they had built and sold Thirty-five thousand vehicles. So it wasn't like a, a quick flash in the pan. You know, like they built ten cars and that was it. Right. Thirty-five thousand vehicles were out there. I don't know if, if a lot. I, don't, I can't give you a number on how many
2: exist still. There's still some around today, but people don't. It's tough to get an estimate of how many. They are pretty rare. They are pretty yeah. rare. Now, it, uh, well, this is all happening.
3: You know, he founded this company in 1921. In 1922. He was married to his, his wife that he kept for the rest of his life, um, right. a- Adelaide Frost, mm-hmm. and they had two kids along the way. They had a, a son named David in 1925 and a son named William in 1928.
2: And it wasn't all bad news when Rickenbacker Automotive went bankrupt in 27 because that's the same year that Eddie Rickenbacker – get this, Scott – bought the indianapolis motor speedway yes so so here's the, the crazy thing he had raced there as a youngster and then bought the entire thing yeah
3: went to the war and then bought the indianapolis speedway and that place is enormous if you ever yeah. been there it's a two and a half mile oval and just an incredible facility he bought it for seven hundred thousand dollars in 1927 now I I did the conversion on this, Ben. Of course, and in today's money, Uh that would be nine and a half million dollars. Now, you may think, well, it's not. I mean, that's not completely out of out of range. I mean, you could say, like, well, geez, that doesn't sound like it's a lot of money for the the Indy Five Hundred track right now. It's probably worth a lot more than that right now. But it wasn't exactly the track that we know now either. It had flat corners. Um, the facilities weren't what they are now, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, he made a lot of improvements along the way. One thing that he did is he introduced um bank turns to Indianapolis. They didn't have bank turns. It was a flat track, as I just mentioned. Um, they mentioned a lot of other upgrades that he did along the way, but he owned this track through some really difficult times. So he bought it right after you know, this company went under. so he he fails as as a as a um, an automotive magnet, I right. guess and right. Uh, and right away picks
2: up with this this purchase of the track. And, and holds on to it for decades. And in his defense, Scott, uh, Rickenbacker Motors, uh, the, the bankruptcy, I don't think is really his fault, to be absolutely honest with you, because the, the company itself happened when a guy named Barney Everett decided to start up another car company. And that had, was,
3: that was his business partner.
2: Yeah, and he had started car companies before. He was asking, uh, Rickenbacker for the use of his name. And then in return, he named him. He named Eddie Rickenbacker vice president and director of sales. Oh, I see. Okay. So it's not a. Um... He's trying to get on the coattails of Rickenbacker's fame. Kind of, yeah.
3: I see. Just to sell the car with the name on it, and uh, it didn't quite work out that way. I mean, the, the cars were just too expensive.
2: And it wasn't the car's fault. It was so, just the time.
3: Well, it makes sense. And I, I mean, when I say as a failure, I mean just mean that it went defunct. That's all. Um, as did so many others of that era. So really, that's that's a tough one to sort out, but. Um, the, I mentioned the ownership of this through through many difficult times. They, he owned this track through the Great Depression. He owned this track through World War II and right up to the very end. He sold it in 1945 to the Holman family. And the Holman family are the ones that currently own it. So they've owned it since 1945 through present day. Um, and that's who he exactly sold He sold it to that family. Um, now, let's see. Um, somewhere in there. Now, while he's still on the track before World War II... In 1938, boy, this guy must have been doing all right, Ben. He bought Eastern Airlines. And I need to make a note here that this isn't the Eastern Airlines that uh, is the new kind of startup Eastern Airlines that, right. that that started around 2011, a very small company that has like three planes right now. This is the the big Eastern Airlines. It wasn't big when he bought it, but it Ooh. became very big. Um, he turned it into kind of a national brand. This one started in 1926. He bought it in 1938. And... Um, Kind of grew it from this small small company to a huge national brand where they had three hundred and four planes at the end.
2: Yeah, because he heard uh, GM was going to sell it, right? And, yeah, and then he uh, he bought it for you know as as you said a, a lot of money. Yeah, Um I, I had three point five million. That's a lot of money. Yeah, uh, especially that's, when that's you're talking about 1938. 1938. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so he he did grow this. And one of the big things he did that would later become a point of contention between him and the president at the time was that he negotiated with the U.S. government to privatize airmail routes. Yes, exactly. And he
3: really was not a fan of this
2: idea.
0: You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens. With all your people, data and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites or build an automation with workflow builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian.
4: Emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with De Davlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: No, no, because this uh, having the airmail routes for Eastern a- Airlines was great because it's a, a promise of solid business. Everybody's sending mail, at least at that time, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, later, I and mean, we don't have to go too much into this, but um, later he had a clash because under the New Deal policies that Franklin Roosevelt put in, uh, he, he had intense objections to these policies. Yeah, he was a staunch conservative. He was a staunch conservative for sure. And he objected to the New Deal policy of canceling air mail contracts with private aviators – because it meant that the u s. Army Air Corps was going to be flying the mail, and several inexperienced pilots were killed in the course of doing this.
3: I see. so he was he was feeling that they were almost put in that position uh, when they shouldn't have been put in that position. It was like it was like killing them.
2: yeah, and he has, yeah, legalized murder is one of his quotes. He also has another great quote from his autobiography uh because he would he would tell people in the public john john and jane q public he would say hey guys flying is great uh but and here's the quote i have never liked to use the word safe in connection with either eastern airlines or the entire transportation field i prefer the word reliable ah,
3: perfect lead in ben to one of the two major near death incidents that uh, that Eddie had to deal with in his life, I guess. Uh, So this is maybe, this is going to be the first time when he was reported dead to the public, but wasn't. And as part of that whole thing, you know, he had to do a lot of, you know, business travel. And of course, he's going to fly Eastern Airlines. And on, uh, let's see, what's the date? February 26th of 1941,
2: Mm -hmm. uh, there was a crash. Yeah, he was on a Douglas DC-3 airliner and was just outside of Atlanta, Georgia.
3: Yeah, that's right. There was a, the, the, Airport, I think it was called Candler Field or something like that, which was uh, which is now Hartsfield-Jackson Airport, so the main airport here in Atlanta. And you got to imagine what Atlanta was like at the time. It was not quite as built up as it is now. You know, huge, uh, there were some areas that were farmland outside. Right. And the plane apparently went down um, on its way, on its approach to Atlanta. And I think it was a number of hours, it was overnight, uh, that they didn't find this plane. You know, it went down. They knew that it went down. But they couldn't find it. They couldn't locate it for, for many, many hours, several hours. Right. They
2: couldn't, yeah, they had to spend the night there out at the crash. Uh, there was more than one survivor. Uh, Rickenbacker, though, picture this, you guys. He was soaked in airplane fuel. He couldn't move. He was trapped in the wreckage and he was, uh, he was trying to motivate the other people, the survivors who were able to walk. He said, go, run, get help. Yeah. Get us out of here. This is a, this is a plane that holds 16 people. Eight of them perished
3: in this wreck and the other eight survived, but they were in conditions similar to him. And I'll tell you that this gets a little bit gruesome here at the end, but this is, this is awful, Ben. Now you said he's soaked in fuel, can't move, and he's there overnight trying to, to, you know, keep the morale up on the, on the right. crash site, I yeah. guess, because they're waiting to be found. It's, it's hours and hours. I mean, we're talking like, you know, six, seven, eight hours before they find this plane even. So he says he says, and I'll I'll read part of this, he says while he was still conscious but in terrible pain, he was left behind, you know, when the ambulances finally arrived by some ambulance drivers because they thought he was dead. They thought he was one of the fatalities. He was in such bad shape. You right. Know?
2: It was one of those let's take care of the living.
3: Yeah, and he he was you know trying to convey to them that he's alive. They didn't know it. So all right, so he when he arrived at the hospital, his injuries were so, so <laughs> they're so grotesque that even the surgeons and physicians who knew he was alive at this point said, "We need to concentrate on other people who may have a better chance of making it." Right. So he,
2: he had a lot of, he was busted up, man. He yeah. had a fractured skull, yep. uh, other head injuries. Uh, he had his left elbow was shattered, not yeah. broken, mind you, shattered. Yeah, he had a
3: crushed nerve, a paralyzed left hand several broken ribs, a crushed hip socket. His pelvis was broken in two places. Um, he severed a nerve in his left hip, and he had a broken knee. And this is maybe the worst part. Yeah, man. this is the... This is awful. This is the cherry on the gross Sunday. All right. The impact caused his left eye to be expelled from the socket. So it's hanging down on his face outside of its socket, his left eye, but he can still see out of the thing. So, so they have to... Not reattached, but put it back in its socket, mm. which they do, along yeah. with fixing all this other stuff. Which can have Oh, this is horrible. So imagine what he looks like, and, and he's soaked in fuel, it's been, what an awful thing, huh? I this mean, the president of yeah. Eastern Airlines. That he just crashed in his own, his own jet, his own plane, um, or he, own airplane, yeah, right?
2: Yeah, he's in the hospital for months.
3: Yeah, long, long time. And he says, but of those months, he said, for 10 days, he was really at death's door. I mean, 10 days, they weren't sure whether he's going to make it or not. And, oh, by the way, one quick thing. He regained full vision, uh, you know, his left eye, his right eye, yeah. all of it. He, it all came back, but it was you know, touch and go for a while. He said, well, he was at death's door for those 10 days. Um, he said he had this overwhelming sensation of calm and pleasure during the time. So he felt like, you know, maybe this isn't so bad. Things are going to be okay for me. You know, either way, this turns out. Sounds uh, I like
2: painkillers to me. You
3: know, you know, I think that's kind of nice, though. And especially for this guy who had so many near-death experiences, and like to feel that way about it. Um, mm-hmm. And there's another big one coming. Yeah, um, you know what? We should probably just go straight to that one. Let's do it because I'll, I'll tell you what. This happened in February. This is late February of 1941, the one we just talked about, that crash. Now, he was um, 51 when that happened. Just a year later, a little bit over a year later, in October of 1942, this guy, Ben, and I'll just tell you now because the this, this story gets interesting. I'll tell you, he was adrift at sea with, with other survivors of a plane crash for
2: 24 days before they found him. Right. He originally thought it was 21, but he... He corrects it later. Here, let's talk about how this happens. Uh, so, it's October 1942. At this point in his life, uh, Reichenbacher is taking tours. Yes. And he... Well,
3: yeah, because he's, uh, he he is, um, offering his, 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 I guess his, uh, his celebrity right to uh to war
2: efforts at this point right to, to increase t- support from civilians to boost morale for soldiers yeah he's, he's doing his um, patriotic duty right and uh he is on a tour of air bases in the pacific theater to review living conditions operations but also on a secret mission ah uh, yes now this is
3: this is intriguing to me this is something that really hasn't been – made. Or the, the actual message itself has never been made public. But um, the guy's name is uh, – the, the Secretary of War, his name is uh, uh, Henry L. Stimson. And Stimson was uh, – he gave Rickenbacker a letter that he was supposed to deliver, hand deliver, to General Douglas, Douglas MacArthur – Um, That was really a uh, uh,
2: he was it was an angry letter, right? Yeah, it was a warning and a rebuke because MacArthur, who, you know, uh, you guys know the stereotype of generals, little headstrong. Sure. Uh, And uh, uh, MacArthur had made some disparaging public comments about the administration. So what I find intriguing about this is that the contents of that letter have never been made public, at least as
3: far as I know, at this point, they haven't been made public. Uh, but we do know that he was there to give this, uh, the sternly written letter to General MacArthur. And, really? uh, he was trying to get there. So here, he's in a plane Ooh. flying over the, uh, the Pacific Theater during World War II. Right. On a mission that, uh, you know, it's, I guess, a kind of secret mission, but not really secret. I mean, he's got something with him he's supposed to deliver but no one right. knows about, but, yeah. um, they know where he's going. Um, the problem was there was an instrument malfunction along the way that led them to be way off course and, uh, you know, it was a navigation
2: system that was, was off. Right, because they were in a B-17D flying fortress. Yeah. And because the navigation was off, they strayed hundreds of miles off course while on their way to refuel at a place called Canton Island. Yeah,
3: so they did not get to uh, refuel, of course, and they had to ditch the plane in the ocean. And, of course, we're right in the middle of all these Japanese-held islands that are, you know, in the Pacific, and they're, they're adrift in the ocean in these, in these life rafts. They were able to get to life rafts, thankfully. Um, but they were adrift for thousands of miles, and for, as we said, 24 days. Now. Almost that, a month. That very is a, few supplies. That's a long, long time for these guys to be out in the water. And, uh, you know, many people don't make it through that. You know, we, I mean, we can be honest about it. They just don't live through something like that.
2: Right. They had enough food for maybe three days on some starvation rations. And after those three days, they didn't eat for, what, another five days? Yeah.
3: this And this is where it takes kind of a really interesting turn. So, you know, not only is it this incredible tale of survival and all that, you know, everything that goes along with this surviving overnight in the Pacific, you know, sharks and all that. Right. Everything yeah. else, the, the elements. Um this is crazy. So after three days, the food runs out. They wait another five days, just kind of floundering, waiting for rescue that's not coming. On the eighth day, a seagull lands on top of Eddie Rickenbacker's head. A seagull.
2: Because they're probably so weak at this point. You know, look, I don't want to spread a bunch of uh, seagull stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> but they're not the nicest birds. So so these this gull probably, you know, doesn't, probably thinks this person is either dead or too weak, really, to yeah. put up a fight. But the, they the, are wrong.
3: Honestly, the seagull might have seen the people as a meal at that point or, some, you know, a part of a meal. It's possible. It, possible, yeah. So they're you know, the seagull is wrong because Rickenbacker somehow managed to catch the seagull that was on top of his head. He caught the the, the, the bird. And instead of, you know, the instinct, I guess, would be to eat that bird, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, the, the remaining people, that you know, the people who are still alive in these rafts, they, they tore apart
2: the seagull and used it as bait to catch fish. Oh, and yes, yes. Okay. And we also should say that at this point, that crash in the airplane in Atlanta, that was the first time that the press said Rickenbacker was dead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, ha- this was, <laughs> Um, this was the second time because they're they're managing to survive. Yeah, largely because of the seagull, right? But, but helping them catch food. Yeah,
3: but I think people at home were thinking, well, you know, they're gone uh, because right. you know they reported the plane down. It had been a couple of weeks, maybe at this yeah, point. Yeah,
2: yeah. The uh, U.S. Navy had searched for a little more than two weeks until yeah. his wife. Said, please, just go one more week.
3: Yeah, she she's the one who prompted them to continue the search for another week. And and as he says, you know, you know, in addition to the in addition to the seagull thing, you know, where they use that as bait for fish food, you know, so that they could or bait for fish rather. Um, he said they lived on sporadic rain that that fell from the sky. And similar food miracles along the way. So I don't know what else happened along there. We have to read his biography to uh, to find out exactly what those miracles right, were. Right. But but it, I mean, if it's anything like the seagull story, that's pretty incredible,
2: really. So um, Rick and always being kind of an alpha male, starts uh, bossing around the other people and and uh, trying to assume leadership. To they say, keep the spirits up. But well.
3: You know, you, you say bossing, but, you know, you've got to, someone has to take that role. And someone say, has
2: to motivate. And you have to, you do, because
3: everybody begins to give up. I mean, in 24 right. days, I mean, I bet there were guys that were ready to give up after t- three or four days, you know, when the food ran out.
2: One one crew member did die.
3: Yeah, one did die, and they had to bury him at sea. Uh, Alec Kazmarksics. Uh, yep, from, from he was a USAAF AAF member, right? Mm-hmm. And so can you imagine what his wife is going through at home, thinking, like, this isn't, again my husband's dead. And but he's not really dead. And it, after, you know, prompting them to to search for another week, they eventually find find them. They find the survivors and um you know of course they're all suffering from hypothermia, sunburn, dehydration, starvation, almost starvation. Yeah. Rather.
2: And this is on uh, November 13th they find them yeah. off the coast of Tuvalu.
3: And um you know this this information that was made public was also, you know of course General MacArthur heard about this and and wants to meet with the guys, you know to continue and And Rickenbacker delivers the message. He he completes the mission, which I think is really, really cool. He held on to that special message and delivered the message to MacArthur. Mm -hmm.
2: Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished at great cost. Uh, So this, this is a story that has been recounted numerous times. You can read about it in a book that he wrote about the experience called Seven Came Through. Uh, you can read about another book by Lieutenant James Whitaker called We Thought We Heard the Angels Sing. Mm-hmm. This is not the last mission that the U.S. sends Rickenbacker on. He also goes in 1943 to, uh, the Soviet Union, right? Yeah. And, uh, he... It's kind of a reconnaissance mission. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a reconnaissance. And it's an observation mission, right? He's also on a, a bit of a Friend finding mission, and, uh, he, when I say friend finding, I mean that in the diplomatic or espionage sense. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yeah. He's sure. making connections. Yeah. And, uh, the, the idea is that he's supposed to provide the Soviets with technical assistance for their American, uh, aircraft, right? Yeah. And, Well, uh, part, and part of this was, uh, touring aircraft hangars and see, and,
3: you know, visiting, uh, some of their, their facilities, right? Right. Yes. and along the way, he makes a critical mistake, Ben. And this is unfortunately, this is what this mission is really known for. I guess is that uh, he made kind of an uh oh moment here. He made him a goof um, in 1943. You know, he's he's asked permission to travel to the Soviet Union and and you know aid with these aircraft and and you know assess their military capabilities along the way as well. Um, so he's he's given access to these different uh, different areas in the, in Russia and. Along the way somewhere along the way in this uh, in this this uh this travels uh, these travels of his he makes just kind of an offhand comment about something which alerts them to the secret B29 super fortress project that the US is working on whoops yeah whoops is right and you know it's just an offhand comment it's not like he's giving them plans to anything it's not like he was really handing over anything it was just again a comment that was that was uh, mistakenly made and you know they, they ran with it they understood what that meant and uh, unfortunately it was a uh, it was a big military secret
2: right but overall that mission was considered a success outside of that because here's what's happening uh people would get him people would try to get him crazy drunk <laughs> to tell secrets yeah uh which is just the the spy game but he um <clears throat> He does end up speaking with Winston Churchill about this. Sure. Uh, we don't know if he, there was some movement in the U S and, uh, the, the U S military and diplomatic fields, but we don't think that president Roosevelt ever met with him, which is no surprise because they were not buddies. Well, not friends at that point, right? Yeah, exactly. And, um,
3: so in different
2: views, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So uh,
3: let's move on past the warriors, right? Because the war—I yeah. mean, the war is over at this point. The war ended what, 1945, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's still, you know, CEO, or he's—he's uh, he's still, I guess. Well, I think he was CEO at this point of uh, of Eastern Airlines, and he remained in that position until about 1959. I think they said that economic conditions caused him to retire. Then he didn't really want to retire. Uh, but he did, and he stayed on as chairman of the board until about 1963. So he's, you know, at this point he's 73 years old, Ben. Right. Um. So he's he's finally truly retired, and uh, he kind of sells into this life of uh, of retirement. You know, enjoying his retirement with his wife. They travel they, uh, all around the states, all over the world, really. Yeah. They travel all over the world, and in fact, one of those travels takes them to uh, Zurich, Switzerland. And of course, you know, his family's Swiss heritage, so that's probably why they were there and in july of 1973 after they they were uh, seeking um specialized medical attention for his wife because she had pneumonia while right. they were there and while they were seeking that attention or or you know trying to get the the doctors to look at her he suffers a stroke while he's in switzerland Mm-hmm. And uh, not long after that, passes away in 1973 yeah, from he, that complications of that stroke.
2: Right. He had also contracted pneumonia at that time.
3: Oh, okay. So he, uh, he had that as well. Yeah. Um And this, uh, boy, we'll talk about something after this. I promise, because this is a, this is a bad end for Adelaide Rickenbacker as well. Right. In, in 1977, so four years later, at age 92, mm-hmm. um, she's completely blind. She's suffering from you know failing health. She's got. Um, this really like severe depression after the death of her husband, you know, for these the last four years, she shoots herself in the head, commits suicide at their home in Key Biscayne, Florida. Yeah. So at 92, she commits suicide just because she just can't take it anymore. It's, it's over for her, but awful ending to that whole thing. I know, but a lot of good things came out of, uh, you know, the, this, this union of, of Adelaide and, and, um, Eddie. Right. She um, was
2: also a very uncon, For her time, she was an unconventional woman, and theirs was an unconventional marriage. Sure. So she she had been married before. She was older than him. She was – she's a public figure, you know, and an activist. So it may have been a situation where she said, I'm done well, probably, yeah, like, it's, uh, it's over for me. I mean, it's, yeah. uh,
3: everything worth seeing and doing is, is done. But, um, again, you know, they had a couple of kids along the way. They mm-hmm. had a good life together. They traveled a lot, mm-hmm. um, you know, in those, those final years. Um, I'm sure he was an interesting guy because when I ever, whenever I hear him described, uh, he's always described as kind of a larger than life character, like a, um, Almost like, uh, not, a, I don't want to say urban legend. What am I thinking of here? Like a tall tale
2: character almost. Oh, yeah, like, uh, Pecos Bill.
3: Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, those two really, I mean, just dire situations that he was in, you know, with the, the airline crash that he nearly passed away in, the, uh, being adrift at sea for 24 days, the stuff that he had to deal with when he was a kid nearly dying. I'm sure that there were stuff along the way, you know, uh, automobile crashes and things that we don't really hear about that were, Close calls as well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that kind of stuff really defined who he was. I'm sure that played into his uh, his, his character, his overall, um, well, you know, the mythology of the guy himself, you know, it made him yeah. larger than life to, to yeah. a lot of people that he survived all this stuff. But for him, I bet that really uh, strengthened him in a way.
2: And what an American success story. You know, when you hear people talk about an American dream or something, this is a self-made man. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is... Someone who didn't start at the top of the socioeconomic pile, but worked and earned their way up often at great, uh, you know, at great cost. And, yeah. and, and uh,
3: He climbed the ladder for yeah. sure. He really did. And uh, and to be so decorated and so recognized for what he did, I think that's great. I mean, to be a um, – he's a, he's a war hero. Um, he had – a part, a critical part in, in two world wars, um, yeah. you know, and uh, all the stuff that he did along the way. In the world the, of racing? I mean, building his own car for, for mm-hmm. six years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, re- owning the Indianapolis 500 track for, you all know, right. some, some, through some difficult times as well. Um, you know, interest, what an interesting character this guy is and, uh, and just fascinating. I was, I was glad to be able to read about him. And, uh, there's more to his story than, than we've even told you. Sure. Of course, there's a lot of stuff, you know, some gaps along the way that mm-hmm. we didn't fill in, but, um, I hope it was as interesting to you as it was to us.
2: Yeah, and we also hope that you will send us some photos of a Rickenbacker if you were lucky enough to see one in person. You can send those pictures to our Facebook. You can send them on Twitter. We are HSW at both of those, and we'd love to have you follow us. You can find stories that don't make it onto the air. Every like gets our, our boss to uh, feel a little less regretful. Sure. <laughs> it's a thousand
3: dollars in our pocket every time you give us a like on uh, on Facebook.
2: Right. I mean, a thousand Ben bucks, well, which being, are not quite. You know I'm kidding, right? I, I, I hope. I There's hope. no
3: side deal between me and the boss or anything.
2: Okay, I don't know, man. You spend a lot of time hanging out in that office. If that was the case, I would spend all day long trying to
3: refine my Facebook process. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I could retire next year
2: off of the just the Facebook, the Facebook scratch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly, off your right. Facebook yeah. kickback. Well, maybe you should just buy an airline. We should we should work that into the deal somehow. Every yeah. Facebook like is worth X number of dollars. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it doesn't work that way. I'm, you know, I'm not a Facebook doctor. I'm just happy people are looking. Yeah, thanks for checking it out, honestly. And that's not the end of it. If you want to hear every podcast that Scott and I have ever done all the way back to when we had a different name.
3: Yeah. Was that 2008, maybe, or seven? I don't remember when we started. Man,
2: I remember one time I said, wow, we've been doing this for a while. And I quoted a number of years. And you said, no, it's this many years. It's been this long. Mm-hmm. And that uh, that was strange because time flies we're having fun and we hope that time flies or drives at top speed at least when you're checking out our show uh but we want your help if you're interested our best suggestions come from listeners so if you have an idea for a topic a follow-up on something a cool car picture or um Somebody sent in another really hilarious, like, Limerick-esque thing that I'm, I'm going to have to show you if you haven't read it, Scott. It's a longer form, right? It's a longer form, yeah. yeah. And we'll we'll put it on the air, too. Um, anything like that, let us know what we should be covering in future episodes. Uh, you can write to us directly. We are... CarStuff at HowStuffWorks.com For more on this and thousands
0: of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com Let us know what you think.
3: Count on real time product
2: availability and fast delivery. Call ClickGranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.
0: Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural
1: enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Discover more at Viking.com.